a seat, get your Bibles out, or uh, open your apps if you have them. It will be important today to have the Word of God in front of you as I preach this sermon. What's the strangest dream you ever had? That would be a good discussion to have on the way home today from the service. What's the strangest dream you ever had? I came, I asked Seth what the strangest dream he ever had, and he said, unspeakable, I can't even say it. So I went to his wife, Kendall, and she shared her strangest dream, and I said, no, I can't share that one either, I'm afraid. What's your strangest dream? My strangest dream, I think I've said it before, I dreamed I was Bill Cosby, and Tina Turner was on my shoulders trying to kill me with her high heels. And uh, I was just a boy when I had that dream, but... I don't think there's any meaning to it, but in Scripture there are times where people have dreams that do have significant meaning. In Daniel chapter 7, one such dream is recorded for us. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1 says, In the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. In our study this morning, as we study God's Word together, I think we can break uh, this sermon down into three categories. Uh, first, I want to talk about uh, what's interesting, and then I want to talk about what's important, and then I want to conclude by talking about the immediate. Interesting, then the important, and then the immediate. What does this mean for us right now? What, what is critical for this church in this place in time? But first, let's look at the interesting. At least I find this interesting, and I hope you do too. Throughout the book of Daniel, we see essentially four major visions or prophecies or dreams. And all of these four visions, they're in chapter 2, in chapter 7 and 8, which we'll be looking at today, and also in chapter 11. But all these four visions are really the same subject matter, given... To different people um, and with varying but increasing details. With each vision we see a little more detail. And that first vision, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, that's really kind of the, the, the perfect key. It's the most simple of the four visions and it's the key that we can understand the rest of it. When we understand that all of it is really about the, the rise and fall of these four world powers, then these dreams become less confusing to us. And in these visions, Daniel received this overview, this spanning of human history over the next 600 years and beyond, ultimately, to the end of all things. And when we read about 600 years in Scripture, that doesn't seem like too long of a time, but uh, does anyone here have a political prediction of what will happen, not this November, but what will happen in 600 years from now? In America, What kind of nation will we be in 600 years? More specifically, what kind of ruler of this nation will we have in 600 years? It's so far beyond us, we can't even contemplate or begin to even imagine. And yet this is the information that God gave to Daniel. The rise and fall of four human superpowers, eventually to be replaced by the kingdom of God. And just recall back with me to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we don't have a PowerPoint here. I don't have any handouts for you. So you're going to really have to use your imagination. I ask that you do. Just for this time, as we visualize this uh, statue, 
really try to picture it in your head. Remember the head, and, and so think of an, an old, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe a Persian or just one of these ancient kind of figures, standing tall, arms crossed, and the head was gold. Think of glimmering, shining gold. And then the chest was made out of a different metal. The chest and arms were silver, shiny, reflective, like a mirror. And then the belly and the thighs were brass. Think of a polished doorknob. So polished you can see your face in it. That's the belly and thighs. The legs, of course, you remember, were iron. Think of maybe a pot-bellied stove or wrought iron, black iron. And then the feet also were iron, but the feet were mingled with clay. And so with this image, we observe that as you go down the image, which represented the different kingdoms. The head, of course, was Rome. The chest and arms were the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly was Greece. The legs were Rome. And then we have this future kind of mixed kingdom in the feet. And as you go through these progressive kingdoms, you see that each kingdom has a is kind of a, a descent in honor. Each metal is less honorable than the metal before, but more powerful. Of course, iron is stronger than gold. And this is true in these kingdoms as well. Though they what they what they lost in honor, they gained in territory and power, each one uh, broader than the previous. And in Daniel chapter 7, 50 years later, Daniel discerned Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. 50 years later, now as an old man, so old, maybe even as old as Larry, he, uh, that's a joke, I love Larry, guys, that's worth laughing at. Um, seven, maybe 70 years old, he has another dream. This time God gives him the dream. And here's what we see. Verse 2, chapter 7. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So this first beast was likely Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. And what we see perhaps here in this strange circumstance of it's a lion with wings, which by the way, archaeologists have uncovered Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And guess what kind of image decorates that palace? Lions with eagle's wings. And perhaps the plucking of the wings and the giving him the, the, the mind of a man standing up on two feet. Perhaps this is representative of not only Nebuchadnezzar's majesty, but also, remember, his humiliation and then his subsequent restoration, where he went mad for a while, so he lost his powers, wings were plucked from him, but then from that depreciated state, he was given his right mind back. The mind was put him, he stood up like a man. Perhaps even uh, a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's Redemption. Then we see in verse 5, and Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. So here we have what was the equivalent of that chest and the arms, the silver, 
the Medo-Persian Empire. We see even in the book of Daniel, Daniel lived through both of these kingdoms. He was there during the transition. And in the statue, you have two arms coming out. So that would be representative of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a joint empire. And here, we see the same thing because the bear is raised up on one side. And in fact, in the Medo-Persian Empire, one of them was stronger than the other. The Persians eventually overpowered the Medes. So here we have that second beast. Now, if you just look ahead to uh, chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, we see a third vision. And that, in chapter 8, we see just a vision of that Medo-Persian Empire and the Greece, Greek Empire, and then a little bit beyond. But we see similarity once again. In verse 3 of chapter 8, he says, I raised my eyes and behold, and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had, how many horns? Two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So again, we see symbolism of the joint empire. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So there again we see the Medo-Persian Empire. Back in chapter 7, look at verse 6. We see a third beast coming up out of this raging ocean. After this I looked, and behold, another, this one, like a leopard. But not any leopard. This one had four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads. And dominion was given to it. So now we have a leopard. The belly and thighs. This would be uh, the belly and thighs of the statue. This is the Greek uh, reign. And it's a leopard. A leopard is a fast animal. And it's also got six wings, so it's even faster, because not only can it run, but it's got the speed of a bird. And it's true that the Greek Empire, the spread of Alexander the Great's conquest was very speedy. In a short 12 years, he conquered the entire known world. You remember, maybe a myth, but the story goes that after he conquered everything, he sat down and wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. He was still a young man when he did it. And that's demonstrated in this speedy leopard that has four wings of a bird on its back. And again, we see Greek, uh, Greece represented in chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. If you want to look there real quick, just turn the page. So you have that goat with the two horns, one horn higher than the other. And it's going wherever it wants. It's doing whatever it wants. But look at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Without touching the ground. So he's going so fast, his feet are, aren't even touching the ground. Again, the speed of the, of the Greek, uh, Greek Empire and how they conquered everything in just 12 short years. It says that the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. That's Alexander the Great died. And instead, there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the earth. 
and his kingdom was divided between his four sub-rulers. So Daniel sees all of this, and he doesn't seem to be too disturbed by this. It's the last beast that comes out of the ocean in Daniel chapter 7 that really disturbs Daniel. So again, back in chapter 7, look at verse 7. And here we're going to see the Roman Empire, those, those iron legs. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So this strange beast that didn't resemble any particular animal. This was Rome. And Rome was vicious, ruthless, powerful. Rome would go to different places and they would conquer and they would lose. And you had the choice to either submit or be destroyed. They would take strip you of all your wealth, all your gold. And then in that place they would say, and now you have taxes. So even though we've taken everything that you have... We're going to come back later, and if you don't give us more, then you're really going to be in trouble. And if you don't agree to this arrangement, what we're going to do is this. We're going to burn down your cities. We're going to clear-cut all your forests. We're going to sow salt in all your farmland. And no one will be able to live here for ten generations. So they were a mighty, wicked, ferocious, terrifying beast. Now, remember, we're talking about just what's interesting right now. And we'll get to what's important later, but here's where it really gets interesting. Look at verse 8. It says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another one, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. So we have ten horns. One horn supplants three of the horns. This horn starts speaking great, boastful things. So now we're getting into, in that original statue, the iron feet now co-mingled with clay. It's a divided kingdom. It's a separated kingdom. And this is still a future unknown kingdom. We don't have exact clarity on where this is and what it's going to be. But we see this prophesied in other places as well. We see this in chapter 8. We see the horn come up again. And you'll remember we see similar things in the book of Revelation. Now here's what's interesting. In these Old Testament prophecies, oftentimes, or sometimes I should say, in the fulfillment of the prophecy, there was a prototype and then there was the primary. There was a fulfillment that was like the prototype. It was the lesser. It was the nearer to the time the prophecy was made. But then there was the primary fulfillment of the prophecy that came later. And, and it can be described, oftentimes it's described as looking at a mountain far off on the horizon. But between you and the mountain is like a small hill. But because that hill is so much closer, it completely and perfectly and so the prophet would prophesy something that was essentially would be fulfilled in that little hill, but many years down the road, a greater prophecy would also be fulfilled or be expected to be fulfilled. For instance, an example of this would be in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where the prophet says to King Ahaz that this will be a sign to you, Ahaz, the virgin will conceive. And there it means just the young lady, one who has never had a child yet, she will conceive 
and have a son. And for Ahaz, the significance was they were they were overwhelmed by these two kings. They were afraid they were going to die. And the Lord had a plan. And the prophet said, a child's going to be born. And before that child is even mature, these two kings are going to be off the scene. And when this happens, you will know that God is with you. And that was fulfilled in Ahaz's time. But of course, we don't treasure that fulfillment of prophecy nearly as much as the primary fulfillment of that prophecy, which was in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, when the Virgin Mary conceived of Jesus and his name means God with us. But you can see how it kind of had dual uh, fulfillment, one nearer and lesser, and then one further down the road, and much more significant and primary. And here, in this little horn, we see the same thing. Um, if you look in chapter 8, we see that little horn described. Uh, well, actually, before we do that, let's look at chapter, verse 19 to chapter 7. Uh, listen to how this is described. Because Daniel, in verse 15, it says his spirit was anxious, the visions in his head alarmed him. And he needed to know what it means. Verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the four, fourth beast. That was his greatest concern, the fourth beast. Which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying. And with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. And which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up. And before which three of them fell. Great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints. So here's here's the explanation. The war uh, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came, and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as the fourth as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns of the kingdom of ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. And he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So some indeterminate amount of time, and then twice that, and the same amount of time cut short. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And we see this essentially affirmed and described again in chapter 8. When you look at verses 9 through 14. You can read that on your own. But you'll notice down in, uh, down in verse 13. It says, then I heard, this is the same kingdom, the same guy, that same little horn. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? Many people probably recognize that as the desolation, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the abomination of desolation. 
And what we see here is, this is fulfilled in Syria, the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. In 167 BC, he captured Jerusalem, and he desecrated the temple by making... By offering a pig on the altar, the unclean animal on the Jewish faith, he offered that on the altar of God, a pig on the altar, an offering to his god, Zeus. And this led to the Maccabean uprising. But that's what's referred, we know that that was fulfillment of this prophecy here. Because it was so clear, so similar to what was described. And yet, that's just the near mountain. That's the hill that's close. There's still a greater permanent fulfillment of this prophecy that is supposed to take place. How do we know this? Because Jesus refers to this in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, he refers to this exact prediction by uh, Daniel. This is Matthew 24, verses 9 through 15. Listen to what he says. Jesus is warning the listeners and the readers. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So we know a time frame here. He's talking about a future. Jesus is talking about a future event because he says first it's gonna, the gospel is going to come to all nations and then the end will come. Next verse he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he was talking about a future event, Jesus was. And he's identifying, he says, Daniel's prophecy is speaking of a future event. But we know that Antiochus Epiphanes did his sacrilege in the temple 167 years before Christ was born. So we see two prophecies in play here. One, that was kind of the prototype, but then Jesus assures us another one's coming. So this then brings our minds to the Antichrist. And if you were to go to Revelation chapter 19 and 20, specifically Revelation chapter 13, you will see descriptions here that match exactly what we see reading here in Daniel. Little horn, a mouth, Boasting great things. And so we see the prophecy in two layers. The prototype has been fulfilled, but we still await this final divided kingdom. So I find all that interesting. But, before we get to the end of the sermon, I think we need to discuss what's important. What's really important in these passages. And I want to bring your attention to verse 9 in chapter 7. This is the conclusion of the vision. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out 
from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So here's what's important. Though we may not know every detail in between, we do know the end of the matter. We know how it's going to end. We know that Christ will rule with his saints. We see the saints mentioned at the end of chapter 7 where it says uh, the kingdom that, that the, the revived Roman Empire essentially shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So we will rule with Christ. We will be clothed in white. It's exactly as Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says that Christ loves the church and gives himself for it, so that he might sanctify it, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's exactly what we see at the end of all things in Revelation 19. That's what we see right here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. And so we'll be there. We'll be there with Christ. We'll be reigning. And, and our responsibility here is not to think about it. Christ said he loved us, he gave himself for us. That's the gospel. And he washed us with the word of God. So if we want to lean into, okay, how do we, how do we prepare ourselves for this ruling with Christ? I would say lean deeply into the love of Christ. Rely fully on his gospel sacrifice that he gave himself for us. And then just completely nourish yourself with the word of Christ. That, those are the three things that are highlighted when the saints are referenced in Ephesians chapter 5. So the first thing that's important is we know how this matter is going to end. I'm going to ask you to turn just one more time. This time back to chapter 2 of Daniel. That will be the last time you turn. And this is the second thing that is important. Uh, number one, we know how this whole thing will conclude. And number two, we know that God seeks to make his ways known. But not to the curious. He seeks to make his ways known to the committed. Look at chapter 2 and verse 20. Daniel praises God. And he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. All of this, we see the character of God, that he is seeking to make his ways known. He wraps them in mystery. He puts them in visions. They're, they're quizzical. We don't understand them completely. But that's because he's not just putting the information out there for those that are curious. He puts his information out there to be known by those who are committed to him. And what we don't know right now, it will be made known when the time is right. But we know that part of God is that he seeks to make his way known, not to the curious, but to the committed. One other thing I think is important to know here, and we see it right there in verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. We also know, and this is important, that God is exercising his sovereign control, mysteriously somehow in concurrence with the deeds of man, but he is in control. Somehow we have a part to play in it. 
You remember um, Nebuchadnezzar delayed his judgment by 12 months because he listened to Daniel's advice. He humbled himself. Somehow, our will, our decisions play in this, but we know that God is exercising sovereign control. He changes times and seasons. He removed kings, and he sets up kings. And that brings us finally now, not just what is important, but what is immediate to us. And with this, I'm going to ask our worship team to come up to prepare us to lead us in this last song. But knowing that God raises kings and sets down kings, knowing that God is in control, let's turn our eyes to our nation, where we're at right now. Our, our nation is on edge. Already violence has began to spread in major cities, and it's, it's reasonable to think that perhaps even more than that, will happen here in the next coming month or two. Uh, even, even reasonable people anticipate that perhaps we have the possibility that by the end of this year, our nation may not look very similar at all to what it once was. Two days ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and all of a sudden this election got that much more critical. She sits on the Supreme Court, for 50 years, America has been afflicted with a value system that actually treasures the slaughter of preborn children. They don't just allow for it, they treasure it. Because when you try to remove the right for them to abort babies, they become militant, defensive. Just look what they did to Brett Kavanaugh when he was appointed to the Supreme Court. And the stakes have never been higher for God's people, for unborn babies for righteousness for our country. So what do we do right now? Brothers and sisters, we pray. We must go to God in prayer. He's the one that rises kings up and sets them down. He's the one that knows the beginning from the end. We must pray. And again, I remind you of this event that comes up this Saturday from 4 to 6 at Patrick Henry Square. It's called uh, Christian's Return. But we, we need, whether you're there or not, we need to be praying. We need to be praying. Can I ask you to stand? We're going to close with a final song here. But no matter what happens this November, no matter who is seated on the Supreme Court, we know to whom the victory belongs, and we hope in our Savior. The one leader who will never let us down, is the only leader whom we celebrate. Our Savior, our Deliverer, our Victory, Jesus Christ.